Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the biggest stories that played out throughout the week was all of the fallout after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. There was a state of emergency declared there. The National Guard was deployed as protests were growing over the shooting of Jacob Blake. Video from over the weekend shows an incident with police in which Blake was shot seven times in the back. His family now says he is paralyzed from the waist down. As I mentioned, there was protest. The NBA boycotted some of their playoff games. Major League Baseball also postponed some games in response to all of this. For more on this, we'll speak to Fabiola Seneas, race reporter at Vox. The incident with Jacob Blake took place on Sunday, and we know what happened because we saw it on video. So there was a bystander across the street who recorded this incident. And the video is only 19 seconds. So with a lot of these videos, we don't exactly know what happens after usually. And we don't really know what happens before the shooting takes place. But within these 19 seconds, what we see is Jacob Blake emerge from one side of a great SUV that's parked on the side of a street. And as he emerges from like the side that we can't see, we see two officers follow him from the side of the vehicle. And he basically walks in front of the vehicle to get to the driver's side door of the vehicle to open it. And so the two officers are pursuing him and their guns are drawn and pointed directly at Blake's back. And as Blake goes to open up the driver's side door, one of the officers grabs onto his white tank top pretty forcefully. And then as Jacob opens the door and leans forward a little bit into the car, this officer fires seven shots. And so it's a bit unclear how many shots were fired and whether it was just the one officer who fired shots. But according to Jacob Blake's dad, who gave an interview to the Chicago Sun-Times, his son has eight holes in his body and is now paralyzed from the waist down. So on Sunday, the family of Blake retained Benjamin Crump, who's a civil rights attorney. And according to Benjamin Crump, three of Blake's children were actually in the vehicle when he got shot, which is something that's extremely terrifying to think of and just is obviously going to be very dramatic for the children. It's definitely a weird scene because as he's walking away from the police officers from one side of the vehicle to the other, it's not like he's running away. The cops have their guns drawn, but they're not like right on him either. So it doesn't really seem like that escalated moment is happening there until the officer grabs Blake by the shirt and then shoots him there, which is, you know, just completely unfortunate. There are reports that the officer might have said something about drop the knife, although it doesn't seem like he's holding something in that instance. One of the interesting things about this also is that there's no police badge cams. They're not wearing them. And I guess they had been delaying this for some time. The Kenosha Police Department. What do we know about that? So according to the Kenosha News, police officers, sergeants do not wear body cameras. But apparently this year there's been a push to change that to basically put funding towards body cameras. And so according to the Kenosha News, that, however, is not going to be taken up by lawmakers until 2021. And that's the same thing for a bunch of other police reform bills that Governor Tony Evers has actually tried to advance in the state of Wisconsin as well. 
And as I mentioned at the beginning, there was nights of unrest, protests that, you know, largely started out peaceful. Then as night falls, they start getting much more violent, cars being set on fire. They had to call in the National Guard to protect certain buildings and assets there. And there was even a curfew set up as well. So it just seems like we're going to maybe expect some more of this in the next coming days. So the National Guard, as you said, were deployed and there's a state of emergency in the state as well. Police, yeah, each night has come out with riot gear. And in addition to Kenosha, right, this unrest has spread to a number of other cities. So I definitely think that police officers are even more on edge right now. And Evers is watching the situation very closely. And I think officials are saying they really want to protect buildings because a lot of like the black business district was burned down in Kenosha. And so folks are really concerned about the courthouse and other city structures. The officers involved in the shooting have been placed on administrative leave and the state's Justice Department is conducting an investigation into this. They say they're going to submit their findings to a prosecutor within 30 days. They have up to 30 days, I guess. But with all of these things, you know, time is so crucial. Protests are going to keep going. They're going to have to really step up their game on this investigation and, and get it done quickly so that we can start having some types of resolutions to this. That is absolutely correct. And, and the issue, as you said before, the lack of body cameras is going to make things go way slower with the investigation because now police have to find witnesses and really get their case together. So hopefully, right, it would be great if things were done sooner than 30 right. days. But I think what we've seen from the past is that that's just not going to be the case. Fabiola Sanias, race reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. In coronavirus news, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma as a coronavirus treatment. There have already been some 70,000 Americans that have already received blood plasma as part of the treatment. But while the president did say that the treatment is very safe and effective, the FDA did not go that far because there have been no controlled clinical trials. For more on convalescent plasma, we'll speak to Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. It's been around for years and been used for a multitude of viruses, and 70,000 people have been treated through an expanded access program at Mayo Clinic. So what we can tell from those two things is that it's safe, but the outstanding question right now is how effective it is, especially for the coronavirus. So with the emergency use authorization on Sunday, the FDA is saying that doctors can administer this plasma which essentially is a recovered patient's blood to sick patients because the recovered patient in their plasma has antibodies that help fight the virus. They can administer that plasma to hospitalized patients. One of the concerns that people have about doing this EUA before we know that it is actually effective is that when you have an EUA, you don't have to continue logging data. So whereas Mayo Clinic was logging all this data, now we could have people getting plasma where it is effective or where it's not effective, and it's going to be harder to know what that is is and what's happening for people. And up until this point, with regards to coronavirus at least, it hasn't gone through the full clinical trial, the randomized testing that they usually do with people. So that's kind of why we don't know exactly how effective it could be. The president on Sunday when he announced it said that it's safe and very effective, so a little contradictory there. But as you mentioned, it's been given to so many people, we at least know that it's generally safe. Yes, but the, quote, very effective part is not proven yet. And notably, Trump's health officials who were on stage with him, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn and 
the health secretary, Alex Azar, didn't push back on him saying that, which I thought was very notable because they're the people who are supposed to lay out the limits here. It is safe, but we don't know how effective it is. And we're not going to know that until we have randomized trials, which are considered the gold standard because they eliminate other factors that could be helping or harming someone. The president likes to paint a pretty rosy picture when it comes to these types of things, as we we're just talking about with the convalescent plasma or even with a vaccine that we're hoping could come by the end of the year, most likely the beginning of next year, especially when it comes to actually distributing it to millions of Americans. But the president seems to say, hey, we might have it before the end of the year, maybe by election time. Stephen Hahn, he's the FDA commissioner. He's been out there trying to calm people down, at least, because there's a lot of people that have distrust of vaccines, distrust of the government as well. So Stephen Hahn has been out there trying to calm people down about it, at least, and try to play up the effectiveness, saying we're not going to put anything out there until we know it's completely safe and effective. Exactly. And it remains to be seen whether that's going to resonate with people, because while he has started trying to reassure people about that transparency and about the agency's commitment to science rather than politics. So far, that has largely been confined to medical journals, which the average American doesn't read. And so he's not really, you know, on the airwaves, on the primetime television shows, telling people this is going to be safe and here is why it is going to be safe. Meanwhile, the president is out there every day saying we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year. And the timelines just don't match up there. We could have a vaccine candidate that is promising by the end of the year, but a lot of people hear him say that And what they hear is, I am going to get a vaccine by the end of the year. And what is largely expected from government officials, from health experts, is that wide availability of a shot is not going to be a real thing until 2021 spring. But of course, by that time, the presidential election will be over. So the politics that are being infused into this are really fueling vaccine distrust that has already been there among a lot of Americans anyway, but is being exacerbated right now because of all the rhetoric that's being discussed around the COVID vaccines in particular. Polls are showing that about 20% of people would probably refuse a coronavirus vaccine if it were available, which is not so encouraging because we need as many people to get it so that we can kind of get to this herd immunity thing and kind of be done with the coronavirus as, as in its current state right now. But The FDA and Stephen Hahn are in kind of this tough spot when the president says, you know, a lot of this stuff and it might not be completely true or he's exaggerating some things. And the president has even called out the FDA on Twitter saying that there could be some deep state people or somebody slow walking these therapeutics and whatnot. When he said that, actually, that was like a day or two before they did the emergency use authorization of the blood plasma. And when it comes down to it, the concern that people have is that the president could be unintentionally sabotaging confidence in the very agency that's going to need to reassure people that the most important thing in this pandemic, a vaccine, is safe and effective. And if we erode confidence in the FDA, then where are we in a few months' time? It's possible that a vaccine candidate could be ready and the American public looks at it and says, nah, I don't want it. And then we're just still in this pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, we do have to have a certain level of herd immunity. Experts largely agree at least 60 to 70 percent of the population. That's a lot of people to convince. It is reassuring to me that we're hearing from these drug companies and the FDA talking about going through all these stage three trials, 30,000 people in each study for each vaccine candidate. And they're really trying to do their due diligence, you know, especially when you hear Russia and Vladimir Putin say, hey, we have a vaccine. We're already going to start using it. And we haven't done all those clinical trials. So at least on this side of things, 
we're trying to do it right. We're trying to make sure it's safe and effective for the vast amount of people so that we do have confidence in our medical system, in our vaccines, and in the government as well with it. Absolutely. And I think it is really important to stress that the system itself is not changing. The pharmaceutical companies are pushing back on any idea that their timelines are going to be sped up to an irresponsible level. There's career people at FDA and across the government, people like Anthony Fauci, who've been there for decades and know exactly how all of this works. And they're not going to rubber stamp a vaccine that does not have the data to support it. So I don't want people to worry that something is going to be publicly available that is not safe or that is not effective. But I think that there needs to be a level of realism injected where it might not be a cure-all right away, that the first vaccine might not be the thing that returns us to normal, and that the first vaccine might not be available to you when the president is saying it's going to be available to you. And I think those are the things that people need to understand. Sarah Overmall, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. More on the COVID front. Many of the transmission chains of COVID-19 have begun with super spreading events. That's when one person, usually in a crowded indoor space, passes the virus on to dozens of others. Some estimates say that 10% of people have been causing 80% of the infections. But one big question is, who is the super spreader? The person or the circumstances of the event? For more on how super spreading is fueling the pandemic, we'll speak to Catherine Harmon Courage, contributor to Vox. If we could stop a lot of these super spreading events from happening, we could actually really get a hold on the pandemic fairly quickly. It is the issue of these, you know, these single infected folks infecting lots of other people and then maybe those people going on to infect even more. So it's really an issue of yeah, being able to stop some of these larger spreading events could really help us bring the transmission levels down to a more manageable amount. Now, is a super spreader a person or is a super spreader the actual event, the, you know, the actual happening of being in an enclosed space and then that kind of happens? W- which is it? That's a great question. I think it could be both um, the individual and the super spreader event itself. What would make a person a super spreader or more likely to be a super spreader? And that's where we're really learning some interesting science about this is originally we didn't really know if people were more likely and we're still finding out if people are more likely in some biological fashion to have more copies of the virus in their system or be more inclined to be able to spread it more easily than others. But by and large, the science is showing us that it's not necessarily the person themselves. It's about the timing during their infection. And as you mentioned earlier, pre-symptomatic people, those are the ones who often are driving these super spreader events because they don't feel sick yet, but they also happen to have a really high amount of virus in them. We know that the virus loads are actually highest right before you start to feel symptoms. So there's really no way for people to know based on how they're feeling if they're likely to spread the virus to other people or not. That's one of the interesting things that we've been hearing for a while about the coronavirus is that the viral load is the heaviest at the beginning, maybe even before you're showing these symptoms. And once you've kind of had symptoms for a few days, you might still even have some. You're probably not as likely to spread it that much then. I mean, a bunch of different things. You're probably at home by then because you're not feeling well. You're obviously not going to big crowded places. So it's right at the beginning when somebody gets sick is when they're most susceptible to spreading this. Catherine, tell us a a little bit about some of the super spreading events that we know. Just recently, there was a story about a super spreading event in Boston. That one was getting a lot of play. Mm -hmm. That happened in late February. It was really kind of before COVID was 
too much on our radar here in the U.S. Um, in terms of tracking and looking out for it. So that was at a biotech conference. It was an international management conference being held in Boston. And recently, a new preprint study that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but there are dozens of researchers on it, and they've been collecting and tracking the genetic sequences from different COVID tests. And so they were able to track the emergence of this one strain of COVID and trace it back to probably just one introduction from one individual. It looks like they probably came from Europe to that conference and then ended up infecting a large number of people from that conference who then traveled back to their home states and their home countries, bringing that with them. And they were able to really say that there's a good chance that this one introduction from this one conference event then led to a large percentage, actually, of COVID cases in the Boston area and, uh, you know, a not small number of them across the U.S. as well. Yeah, I think they estimated that that one Biogen conference led to an estimated 20,000 COVID-19 cases mm-hmm. in total. And that's it's just mm-hmm. so crazy to hear that. And, you know, little pockets, little outbreaks like this have kind of happened all over the place. So all of these things kind of lead us into the guidance by public health officials and why they say, hey, well, you shouldn't be going to concerts. You shouldn't be going to bars. Unfortunately, you shouldn't be going to church events sometimes too, because you know, you're in closed areas a lot of times. Sometimes people are singing and yelling, and this is when you're blowing out all that viral load all over the place. Exactly. And that was one of the interesting things too, is that yeah, it's not in all indoor spaces are created equally, as you mentioned. That's the ones, especially where people are speaking at high volumes, they're singing that are more likely we've found so far to be um, to lead to super spreading events. Let's talk a little bit more about the closed environments versus the open environments. Obviously, in a closed environment, you're probably about 20 times more likely to spread some coronavirus infections than in open air ones. But even still, things like we were saying, kind of concerts that I know a lot of people want to get back to seeing live music, these are still problematic areas. And there was one interesting study out of South Korea looking at an outbreak of COVID at a gym facility, and they tracked back a lot of cases back to these kind of aerobic dance classes like Zumba. But they had an infected instructor who also then went on to teach Pilates and yoga classes and people in those classes weren't infected. So it does seem to have a lot to do with kind of that like respiratory amount that might be going out into the air, as you said. So then the big question, what do we do to limit these super spreading events? It's kind of what we've been hearing from public health experts, wearing the mask, social distancing, limits on capacity in certain locations. These are all the things that we've been hearing about, been doing, and that's what we have to continue to do to limit these events. And I think, too, as the Biogen conference example shows, you know, even if you're in an area of low transmission, it's not you're not immune. You know, there are still going to be cases of COVID circulating, so you can't count on the fact that your area seems to not have too many cases and think that maybe going into an indoor space like this or an event like this might be safe. But as that, yeah, as that example shows, it just takes one introduction into a closed space with lots of people to really spark potentially tens of thousands of new cases. The guidelines that Japan has out is to avoid the three C's, which is closed environments, crowded places, and close contact settings. So we still got a lot of work to do in limiting the spread of the virus, but at least we are getting a handle on it, and we know that these super-spreading events can pose a big problem with outbreaks. Catherine Harmon Courage, contributor to Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.